welcome to episode 20 of my Leaders of the American Civil War podcast. In this episode, we continue our discussion of Union General George Henry Thomas. In the last episode, we left with the Union Army in July of 1864, now finally having reached Atlanta. Confederate General uh, Hood staged an all-out attack on Thomas's Army of the, Cumber- of the Cumberland at Peachtree Creek. This attack failed with heavy losses for the Confederates. So then Hood then pulled his army back into the safe confines of the Atlanta defensive works for the moment. Hood, however, was not finished. On July 22nd, he began what we now call the Battle of Atlanta. He had rightly perceived that the left flank of McPherson's small army of the Tennessee out east of Atlanta was exposed and isolated. So he sent a large Confederate force under Hardy and Cheatham and cavalry under Wheeler out of Atlanta on a wide arcing march to the east. They went around McPherson's army to catch him on the left flank and to destroy him. Now, as this was unfolding, General Sherman, uh, he was uh, head of the entire Union force there, thought it might it meant that Hood had abandoned Atlanta. But he was wrong, and in fact, his force to the east of the city under McPherson was in great danger. Under this assumption, Sherman ordered all of his forces to close in on Atlanta, which would have been the wrong thing to do at this point. Thomas was cautious, and he knew Hood too well to think he would evacuate uh, Atlanta without an all-out fight. McPherson knew this too, and positioned his men for what he believed was an, an attack on his left flank. When the attack came, his forces were isolated, but ready for the onslaught. The Battle of Atlanta was the largest engagement of the Atlanta campaign, which resulted in significant losses for both sides. At least 5,500 were casualties on the Confederate side and some 3,500 on the Federal side. It was a failure for Hood's Confederates, and again he retreated back into the works of Atlanta. This time he would settle in for a siege of the city by Sherman's Union forces. Now, during this battle, General McPherson himself was killed. This happened during the rebel attack while he was reconnoitering a gap between his units. McPherson had gotten out ahead of his army into no man's land, much the same way that Stonewall Jackson and James Longstreet had done. And this rarely turns out well for a general when he does this. He was ambushed by rebel soldiers and shot while trying to ride back to his lines. This was a huge loss for the Union army which caused Sherman and Grant tremendous grief. McPherson was universally loved by leaders north and south and was considered the most promising young general in the entire Union Army. In fact, it was assumed by many that McPherson would someday be president. This was not to be. When Union General, sorry, when Confederate General Hood found out about McPherson's death, he was greatly saddened by the loss of his old friend. As we discussed in a previous episode, many Confederates, including A.P. Alexander, were moved by the loss of McPherson, even though they were engaged in a deadly struggle on opposite sides. After this, Sherman temporarily placed John Blackjack Logan in command of McPherson's troops. General Logan Logan is the Union general who would go on to create the Memorial Day holiday as we know it today. And then later, at length, Sherman decided to appoint Oliver Otis Howard to take permanent control of the Army of of the Tennessee. 
Howard would later command half of Sherman's Union forces, which would make their way through Georgia to the sea. Now, back in Atlanta, which was now under siege by Sherman's forces, with Hood's Confederates bottled up inside the works, this went on for a month, during which time Sherman planned a turning movement to the west of Atlanta, extending his army to the far right. He moved toward Jonesboro, Georgia, to the south of Atlanta, which was the last crucial supply line to the city. Hood's Confederates moved alongside the Union forces and built parapets and defensive works as they went. Finally, on September the 1st, Thomas's Army of the Cumberland attacked at Jonesboro, Georgia. General Thomas sent his uh, original 14th Corps in to execute the attack, which stormed the rebel works with great ferocity. In this attack, they succeeded in capturing the railroad line from Macon to Atlanta. This was the end for the Confederates in Atlanta because their supply, supply lines were now in Union hands. Thomas's attack was the most complete and successful assault upon formidable works of the whole campaign. It led to the surrender of Atlanta the following day. The Confederates evacuated Atlanta and in doing so set fires to the uh, supplies they couldn't carry off. This, of course, caused much of the city to go up in flames. And these fires were well depicted in the movie Gone with the Wind. On September 2nd, which also happens to be VJ Day, which would happen exactly uh, 81 years later, the Federals sent a brigade into the city under General Henry Slocum and found it had been completely evacuated by Hood's rearguard. Sherman sent the following telegram to Washington, quote, So Atlanta is ours and fairly won. I shall not push further on this raid, but in a day or two will move to Atlanta and give my men some rest, unquote. Meanwhile, Hood had split up his army during the evacuation in order to make a speedy escape. When Thomas discovered this, he proposed a plan to destroy the divided columns in detail. Sherman decided against this and instead let uh, let Hood go. Sherman had conquered Atlanta. Now, the fall of Atlanta created a sensation in the North. Lincoln wired his congratulations to the army and predicted that, quote, the marches, battles, sieges, and other military operations that, that have signalized this campaign must render it famous in the annals of war, unquote. The fall of Atlanta rescued Lincoln's re-election campaign, which all but ensured the Union would eventually win the war. But there was much more fighting to be done. Now, in the Atlanta campaign, Thomas had commanded more than three-fifths of Sherman's Union force, and these units had borne the brunt of much of the heaviest fighting. Sherman had captured Atlanta, but most of Hood's army had escaped to fight on. In fact, Hood's first move was to get between the Union Army and their railroad lines north of Atlanta. These supply lines extended all the way through Georgia to Chattanooga, then to Nashville, and then on to Louisville, Kentucky. Every mile of the railroad supply route was subject to raids by Hood's forces. Wheeler's Cavalry and Nathan Bedford Forrest Cavalry were wreaking havoc as well. At first, Sherman moved north to fight off Hood's raids and protect the garrisons from attack. However, this was proving fruitless, 
as Sherman could see from atop Kennesaw Mountain. In the distance, he could see railroads burning for miles, and, and there was little he could do about it without giving up territory he had just conquered. Meanwhile, Sherman dispatched General Thomas to Nashville on September the 26th to take charge of the defense of Tennessee. Thomas posted cavalry brigades all, all over to protect the bridges and railroads from attack. But the Confederates under General Hood appeared to be changing their plans. Hood was moving his force to the west into Alabama and appeared ready to turn north into central Tennessee. Sherman, meanwhile, had also changed his plans. Instead of trying to stop Hood from destroying his supply lines, he decided to abandon his supply lines and march his army to the sea instead. Quote, Let them go north. My business is down south. Unquote. Sherman exclaimed when he found out Hood had seized the federal garrison at Dalton, Georgia, and tore up the tracks from Resaca to Tunnel Hill. He also wired uh, Union General-in-Chief U.S. Grant, quote, I can make a march and make Georgia howl, unquote. Grant was worried that Hood would try to re-enter Tennessee if Sherman let him go, and Sherman told Grant that Thomas would beat him if he did. Sherman was dead set on marching his army to the sea and, saw, and sought Grant's approval. He told one of his cavalry commanders, quote, I am going into the very bowels of the Confederacy and propose to leave a trail that will be recognized 50 years hence, unquote. At length, Grant finally agreed to Sherman's plan. At this, Sherman split his army into two parts. 60,000 of his fittest and toughest troops would accompany, accompany him from Atlanta to Savannah. They would cut a destruction path 60 miles wide on their way. They would destroy plantations and any and all resources of war they could find. Now, some of these bummers, as they were called, had a liberal interpretation of war resources, but that's a topic for another podcast. On their way to the coast and then onward through South Carolina, they would be free. They would free tens of thousands of slaves, perhaps hundreds of thousands. Some of these would be recaptured by Wheeler's Confederate cavalry, but many would remain free. Sherman's name would become a scourge to the Georgia aristocracy even to this day, and South Carolina as well for that matter. Meanwhile, Sherman had left General Thomas in charge of the entire western theater of the war. Sherman was gone, and with him went the very best of Thomas's Army of the Cumberland, plus the best portions of the Tennessee and the Ohio armies as well. And, as this was happening, Confederate General uh, Hood's new attack strategy into the north was becoming clear. Hood would cross the Tennessee River at Bridgeport, Alabama, and cut up the Union railroads on his way. Then he would confront Thomas's Federal forces in Tennessee— if he prevailed over Thomas, he then planned to take Nashville, then cross the Cumberland River into Kentucky and threaten uh, Cincinnati. Along the way, he planned to replenish his army with fresh recruit, recruits from Tennessee and Kentucky. Thomas was now left to protect all the newly held federal territory in the West from his base in Nashville. And he was to do this with a pieced together army from units scattered all over the area. 
Most of his army of the Cumberland was now with Sherman making its way from Atlanta to Savannah. Now, Thomas's job of protecting Tennessee was going to be a tall order because Hood's refreshed Confederate army of Tennessee with uh, forty to 50,000 men was bearing down on him from the south. This was late November of 1864. General Thomas was in Nashville, and General Schofield was on his way north from Georgia to meet up with him. Schofield had about 23,000 men who had remained after Sherman departed for Savannah, and he had been ordered by Thomas to make his way to Nashville. Thomas was also expecting two divisions of reinforcements with General A.J. Smith to arrive soon, and in order to assemble a sufficient force to do battle with Hood, he began pulling in troops from garrisons throughout the area. Now, while Schofield was on his way, he was expected to delay Hood as much as possible while uh, Thomas pieced together an army back in Nashville. General Schofield was an interesting character, and we haven't really talked much about him until now. With Sherman gone, he was in command of, um, he was under the command of General Thomas, but he didn't much care for Thomas. Schofield was a keen political operator with a much stronger sense of politics than Thomas, and this would serve him well later. In fact, after the Civil War, he would be selected by President Andrew Johnson as Secretary of War, and he would also achieve a very high rank in the Army later in life. Schofield, most importantly, was also a very lucky general, which we will see a mo- in a moment here at uh, Spring, Spring Hill and Franklin. Meanwhile, as Schofield was traveling north with his army, Thomas ordered him to stop at Columbia, Tennessee, and hold the rail bridge across the Duck River. The objective was to stall Hood, and to, to the extent possible, until Smith's reinforcements could arrive into Nashville. Schofield was expected to hold Hood south of the Columbia River and then fall back north toward Nashville without getting trapped. On uh, November the 27th, Schofield actually crossed over to the north side of the Duck River because he was worried about being flanked. Confederate General Stephen Dill Lee came up to the south side of the river and was ordered by Hood to make demonstrations of a potential attack from the south bank. This was a diversion, and it worked. That's because on November the 28th, Hood crossed over the Duck River with his entire Confederate force along with Nathan Nathan Bedford Forrest's cavalry, upstream from Schofield, and he began to get around him and between Schofield and Nashville. Now it was a race to see if Hood's Confederates could get in front of Schofield and cut him off before he could get to Nashville. The Union cavalry under uh, General James Wilson was blocked out and could not support Schofield. Hood was very aggressive, and his fast-moving army actually marched through the woods and got around Schofield to cut him off at Spring Hill, Tennessee. All Hood had to do now was cover the Columbia Turnpike at Spring Hill in order to capture and destroy, or destroy, Schofield's army. This is where Schofield got lucky. As we discussed in the Patrick Claiborne episode, somehow Hood and Forrest failed to cover the Columbia Turnpike. After getting around Schofield's army and nearly cutting them off, the Confederates failed to cover the road. So as a result, during the dark of night of November the 29th, Schofield marched his entire force of 23,000 men right by Hood's entire army 
with their campfires glowing. According to Union General David Stanley, they passed almost on tiptoe, quote, like treading on thin ice over a smoldering volcano, unquote. When the sun arose on the following day, Hood realized the Federals had escaped and furiously threw, threw his army into, the, into a headlong pursuit. Now that Schofield's army had made it miraculously out of Spring Hill, they marched rapidly to Franklin, Tennessee, which was on the bend of the Harpeth River, having left much of their equipment behind in order to increase their speed. Hood's army was hot on their heels. The Harpeth River was the last barrier between Schofield and the relative safety of Nashville's Union fortifications. There wasn't time for Schofield's Federals to cross the Harpeth before they would be attacked, so Schofield's men fortified their position and awaited the onslaught that was coming from Hood's rebels. And, when it came, the Battle of Franklin, Tennessee resulted in one of the most ferocious and lopsided battles of the Civil War. On November 30th, Confederate General Hood, without waiting for many of his units to come up and without any artillery support, launched his army at Schofield's well-entrenched Federals. This was a desperate all-out attack in many waves that resulted in crippling of the Confederate army. The Franklin battle was actually the largest single attack of the entire war, larger than Pickett's charge at Gettysburg. By the end, 14 Confederate generals were casualties. Six of these were dead, including Patrick Claiborne and Hiram Granbury. And untold thousands of private Confederate soldiers were dead, wounded or captured. Hood did not keep accurate records of this debacle, so we'll never actually know the true extent of the Confederate loss on that day. Now, as a note of interest, I live in Texas and have driven through both Claiborne, Texas, pronounced by uh, Cleburne, by the locals, and Granbury, Texas, which are both just south of Fort Worth. And just south of those towns lies Fort Hood, which is named after the man, after the man who sent both of these men into the fury at Franklin. Back to our story. At midnight, December 1st, Schofield evacuated Franklin and made his way to Nashville. The Federals knew they had escaped destruction twice by the skin of their teeth, only luck or providence can explain this. Now also on December 1st, A.J. Smith's two divisions finally arrived in Nashville, and Thomas was now uh, piecing together a fighting force to take on Hood's rebel army in earnest. Wilson's cavalry was building, but was not yet strong enough to take on Forrest. Cavalry strength was a major issue, which Thomas felt he must address before he he was ready for a full-scale battle. Actually, Thomas's cavalry had never fully recovered from the siege at Chattanooga and the loss of their animals. Also, Sherman had taken the very best mounts and equipment available with him on the march to the sea. So Wilson's cavalry troopers were not ready for a major battle until they could secure proper mounts. To address this, the Federals were scouring the countrysides of Tennessee and Kentucky for horses. They even took horses from Vice President-elect Andrew Johnson's farm as well as the traveling circus in the area. Now, on December 2nd, Hood's uh, Confederates had followed Schofield to the outskirts of Nashville, and they dug in. 
While all these events were occurring, Thomas had further fortified Nashville, which made it all but impregnable to the rebels. Actually, Hood did not plan to attack Thomas at Nashville, but he didn't need to. He knew Thomas would be under tremendous pressure from Washington to attack him instead, and Hood's plan was to beat Thomas in the open field when this happened. He was right. The Lincoln administration was now fairly frantic and worried about Hood's intention to launch north towards the Ohio River, so they soon began demanding that Thomas attack uh, Hood immediately. However, Thomas, as you recall, was obsessed with preparation, and he wasn't ready yet. Now, for the upcoming battle, Thomas arrayed his pieced-together army in the following way. Facing south from Nashville, he placed A.J. Smith's two divisions on his right. Thomas J. Hood's Fourth Corps was in the center, and Schofield's 23rd Corps was on the left. Now, on the left of Schofield, General Steedman's assorted garrison troops held the far left flank. You might recall Union General Steedman had stepped in uh, to the breach in a last-minute save at Chickamauga that kept Thomas from being overrun. Today, Steedman's forces on the far left at Nashville included eight regiments of black soldiers who would play a pivotal role in this battle. In fact, these black troops were destined for renown here at Nashville. They were given a feature role by General Thomas and for the first time in history would play such a role in a major battle. Now Hood's command consisted of A.P. Stewart's corps on the left, Stephen Dill Lee's corps in the center, and Frank Cheatham's corps on the right. Stephen D. Lee's command would prove to be the most sturdy and dependable for the Confederates. Nathan Bedford Forrest's command... Uh, for of the Confederate cavalry was always well-equipped and well-trained. However, coordinating efforts with the infantry was not a strength for Forrest, and this would play a role in the upcoming battle. Thomas continued building his army, but the telegrams from Washington became increasingly erratic and dramatic. They wanted him to attack now, uh, ready or not. General Grant, from his position in, as commander-in-chief, from City Point in Virginia, began wiring Thomas demanding action, but Thomas demurred. His army was not ready, and he, and he knew there was little that Hood could do to harm him in the meantime. On December 8th, General Halleck, effectively Grant's chief of staff, wired Grant to indicate that Thomas should be removed if he does not attack, attack Hood soon. By December 9th, uh, Grant had become equally frantic and wired Halleck to remove Thomas of command and replace him with Schofield. Halleck, however, smartly held the order instead and informed Thomas of Grant's ire against him. Grant then suspended the order before it could be delivered. When Thomas learned of Grant's dissatisfaction, he offered to resign, but this was not accepted. Now, I mentioned earlier that Schofield was a a keen political operator, Indeed, he was aware of Washington's anxiety for an immediate attack on Hood. And, just like Hood had done to Johnston in Atlanta, Schofield had been secretly wiring Washington, stating that Thomas was being unnecessarily cautious. Schofield seems to have been quite uh, the Machiavellian. For some time, he had been scheming against Thomas in hopes of replacing him as commander. At the moment, this seems to have been working. 
Then, just as Thomas was getting his force ready for action, it began to rain. For two days, rain descended, freezing as it fell. Washington did not care. They wanted action and had reached the limit of their patience. This is where we will leave it for now. Next episode, we will cover the Battle of Nashville, which would result in the most complete destruction of any army during the entire war. So tune in next time as we conclude our discussion of Union General George Henry Thomas.